This is Guns and Butter. There isn't any word right now for people who oppose, critique, or question some or all of the disproportionate tribal power exercised by various Jewish elites. This is Guns and Butter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Kevin Barrett, Philip Giraldi, and Gilad Otzman. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 1. Kevin Barrett, Philip Giraldi, and Gilad Otzman were panelists on the Deep Truth Visionary Speak Out online video conference of June 10, 2018, produced by No Lies Radio. We begin with a presentation by author, journalist, and radio host, Dr. Kevin Barrett. So my presentation is called Anti-Semitism, Anti-Zionism, Judeophobia. Let's define our terms. I have been regularly reviled as an anti-Semitic, Holocaust-denying conspiracy theorist ever since I started saying that George Bush, uh, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld, none of whom are Jewish, uh, were suspects in 9-11. And this struck me as very, very strange. Uh, I started looking into some of these uh, Zionism-related issues at, at that point and uh, discovered that, indeed, all of these various kinds of approaches that are threatening to Jewish power or Zionist power bring up these kinds of uh, essentially uh, smear words. You know, these pejorative appellations are applied as a kind of a, a verbal weapon of war. So uh, one, one way to, to fight back against this is to deconstruct the whole notion of anti-Semitism, and, and that's what I'm going to do today. Famous quote from Dr. Meyer, the Holocaust survivor, an anti-Semite used to be a person who disliked Jews, now it's a person who Jews dislike. And it's certainly not all Jews, uh, rather it's used by those in various uh, extreme tribal configurations. Now that is essentially around Zionism. Uh, anyone who is getting close enough to the deep truths that could wreck the Zionist project or who is otherwise posing an actionable threat to Zionism gets called a so-called anti-Semite. People like Abe Voxman, uh, the former head of the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, is quite uh, well known for his use of this derogatory term. But let's ask what this really means. Our Anti-Zionists and critics of Jewish power like Jeremy Corbyn, Pat Buchanan, and so many others on the left, on the right, in the center, are they really racists who hate Jews based on alleged Semitic ancestry and racial characteristics? Because, of course, that's what the word anti-Semitic implies. Semitic is taken to be some sort of racial characteristic, and anti-Semites, by implication, are people who are racists against Jews based on this Semitic ancestry. Well, there, there was some truth in this notion back when the term anti-Semite was coined and popularized in the 19th century, because in the 19th century, there was a very, very strong uh, racialist and indeed racist uh, kind of position that was the, the dominant position uh, among European elites who put themselves at the top of a racial hierarchy. And at that time, some of the non-Jewish Europeans put Jews down several levels on the racial hierarchy, 
and looked down on them as so-called Semites, confusing the notion of Semitic languages, such as Hebrew and Arabic, with some sort of racial uh, category, which simply doesn't exist. There's no racial reality to people who are Jews. They're, they come from all different races. And the same is true, actually, of Arabs as well. But in the 19th century, they didn't understand this, and uh, it became a, kind of a common term for, uh, for people who were racist uh, against Jews. The inventor of the term was Moritz Steinschneider, and then it was popularized in 1881 by Wilhelm Marr. And he actually was, was a proud anti-Semite. He actually founded the League of Anti-Semites. And indeed, he was quite uh, proud of his racialist take on things, and he believed that Jews were somehow racially inferior. Well, that whole notion of Jews being racially inferior has gone by the wayside. I think the Nazi experience had a lot to do with putting that to bed. And indeed, today, only a tiny, minuscule fringe thinks that Jews are racially inferior because of their supposed Semitic uh, racial identity or ancestry. And so, therefore, the terms anti-Zionism for people who oppose Zionism, which is almost everybody who gets this label, anti-Semite, and then Judeophobia for people who actually are somehow prejudiced against Jews are terms that are far more appropriate. Uh, that is, an anti-Zionist is someone who denies the legitimacy of the state of Israel or works against this uh, Jewish state occupying Palestine. And then a Judeophobe would be somebody who is simply prejudiced against Jews somehow. So here we have Nature Carta as a classic example of anti-Zionist. They're the leading anti-Zionist Jewish group. And then we have uh, this uh, recent U.S. Senate candidate from California, Patrick Little, who I would argue could be considered a Judeophobe. Now, ironically, uh, even though in most of the West, and indeed much of the world, Jews are widely viewed as racially or genetically equal or perhaps even superior to non-Jews. Arabs and Muslims, like Blacks and Hispanics uh, here in the United States, are still victims of a widespread racial prejudice. Uh, Jack Sheehan's book, Real Bad Arabs, and his film of the same name, illustrates the extreme racial prejudice against Arabs that is on display in Hollywood films. And since Arabs are speaking uh, the by far most widespread Semitic language, which uh, Arabic is, is, what, 95 plus percent of uh, people speaking Semitic languages are Arabs uh, speaking Arabic. And Muslims revere the Holy Quran and have to learn some of it actually just to do their prayers. So they have some Arabic too. So they're sort of honorary Semites in a sense. So prejudice against Arabs and Muslims really could be called anti-Semitism because there's a racial dimension to this prejudice. And that's why Barbara Honegger has suggested that we need millions and millions of Arabs and Muslims, perhaps in Gaza, to start with holding up signs saying, Je suis Semite, I am a Semite. But of course, the term anti-Semitism is primarily used today uh, as a derogatory term for people who are being smeared as if they were somehow racially prejudiced against Jews. So it's ironic that this very term is being used to denigrate uh, and indeed commit genocide against Semites. And it's being used by people who are not Semites. That is the Ashkenazi Jews who are the main force behind the use of so-called quote-unquote anti-Semitism as a weaponized term are the ones who are actually using that term to try to destroy opposition to the genocide they're committing 
against actual Semites in Palestine. But they're crying wolf. That is, the term anti-Semitism is starting to wear off, uh, like the term wolf, wolf in the Boy Who Cried Wolf fable. And of course, these so-called Semites uh, over in occupied Palestine are hardly Semitic. They're uh, Ashkenazi, Eastern European people, uh, and they a lot of them changed their names. Like uh, Mil Milikowski is actually the real name of Netanyahu. Many of the Zionist leaders are fake Semites who changed their name to sound more Semitic. And they're not. So once we've gotten rid of this loaded term, this weaponized term, anti-Semitism, in the way it's being used today, of course, then we're free to examine and evaluate the actual reasons, which are cultural and historical, not racial, why anti-Zionists oppose Israel and why Judeophobes harbor anti-Jewish prejudices. There are plenty of good reasons to be an anti-Zionist. Virtually the entire population of the Muslim East, which I prefer to the term Middle East, uh, is anti-Zionist. That is, if you watch Arab television, although not in Saudi Arabia anymore, but everywhere else, uh, the term Israel is never happens. You never hear it. It's always the Zionist entity because the whole population of that region doesn't accept the legitimacy of this so-called Jewish state occupying Palestine. And of course, the notion that there should be a Jewish state in holy land that is holy to 4.1 billion people, uh, 4 billion plus of whom are not Jewish, um, but are rather Christian or Muslim, is utterly absurd. As you can see on these graphs, uh, Christians and Muslims together make up the majority of the world's population, whereas Jews uh, make up a tiny, minuscule fraction. And all of these people, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, all uh, revere Palestine equally. And yet these Zionist Jews have claim that as God's chosen people, they have this special claim. Now, most Zionists are not even religious. They don't even believe in God, but they do believe that he promised them Palestine, as Ilan Pape says. And that's a classic example of the utter irrationality of the entire Zionist project. Another grotesquely irrational claim to Israel's legitimacy is that, well, yeah, sure, these Zionist Jews came from all over the world, mostly Europe and America, and invaded and occupied Palestine and stole it and are dispossessing the indigenous population. But that's okay, because after the Holocaust, the Jews need a place to be safe. Safe? And this little tiny sliver of land surrounded by people who identify with the victims of the genocide that the Zionists are perpetrating and who are looking forward to the day they can liberate Palestine? That kind of puts the Jews who go to this place in a very tough position. So uh, it's not exactly a good way to make Jews safe. It's obviously quite the opposite. So again, we have this utter absurdity of the claim or an argument about why this Jewish state occupying Palestine is legitimate. And indeed, this occupation uh, meets the definition of genocide under international law, as international law professor Francis Boyle of the University of Illinois has explained in his book, Palestine, Palestinians, and International Law. And then here's a graphic depiction of the ongoing genocide of Palestine. In uh, 1946, Palestinians owned the vast majority of that land, and now they've been reduced to people in essentially de facto concentration camps surrounded by walls and barbed wire and snipers who, uh, who shoot them down if they get too close to the border. 
and Gaza will be uninhabitable in a couple of years, according to uh, UNESCO. So that is this is a genocide. Gaza here is the world's biggest open air concentration camp, and it's really something of an extermination camp because the Israelis are cutting off uh, decent water supplies, uh, destroying infrastructure, committing massacres regularly. Essentially, they're planning to depopulate. It means everybody there is either going to be dead or expelled. And finally, of course, Israel is uh, an apartheid state, although some would say that that's an insult to South African apartheid because what's happening in occupied Palestine is infinitely worse. And uh, Israeli troops uh, shoot down children for sport as a regular occurrence. Chris Hedges described watching this happen in his article, Gaza Diary. She described how the Israeli soldiers lure children within range of their gun sights by barking out obscene insults over the loudspeakers, and they shoot the children for sport when the children come out to throw rocks. Another reason to oppose Zionism is that Israel has been bleeding the United States dry. According to a Christian Science Monitor study published in 2002, Israel up to that point cost the United States about 1.6 trillion. And now if we count the cost of the 9-11 wars for Israel, uh, that would be well over 5 trillion, perhaps considerably higher than that. That's, uh, that's actually quite a bit of money. So 5.6 trillion on wars for Israel, according to Newsweek, plus 1.6 trillion up to 2002. That gives us a total, my quick mental math, I think it's $8.2 trillion that we've spent for uh, this ongoing, utterly irrational genocide of Palestine. So conclusion, anti-Zionism is rational and defensible. In fact, it's uh, inarguable. There's just no decent uh, case for Zionism which is why they have to resort to either weapons or weaponized smear words rather than arguments. So let's move on to look at Judeophobia, which is the correct word for prejudice against Jews. Anti-Semitism, again, has to be thrown out because it implies a racial prejudice. It's all based on 19th century thinking that no longer exists. But there are Judeophobes. There are people who are prejudiced against Jews in various ways. Here are two competing narratives on why people might be prejudiced against Jews. In any by prejudice against Jews, that could mean against Jewish individuals or against uh, Jewish groups or tribal behavior. According to Kabbalah.info, people hate Jews. Well, look how they screw up their foreheads and, and glare. They must really, really hate. Uh, uh, these people hate Jews because they killed Jesus, they're greedy usurers, they denied Muhammad's prophethood, they're blamed for the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, uh, that somehow. Nazi ideology still exists, okay, uh, that there's an Israel-Palestine conflict, okay, and finally that uh, Jews run the world because they're so successful. So this is the, the narrative from Kabbalah.info, and essentially the uh, assumption underlying this narrative is that hatred of Jewish people is a terrible disease that just keeps cropping up for no reason at all. Jews are completely innocent. Nothing in Jewish behavior could ever have created any of this uh, irrational, mindless hatred. And that's the narrative that we're fed day in and day out by the media, uh, by our standard historiography, uh, and the Jewish studies departments in various universities are there to make sure that we adhere to that uh, narrative. And anybody who gets out of line is going to have a serious problem in their university, and likewise in other important institutions. Well, a competing narrative about the conflict between Jewish and non-Jewish communities throughout history is offered by Laurent Guyenot in his new book, From Yahweh to Zion, Jealous God, Chosen People, Promised Land, Clash of Civilizations. And I 
frankly, uh, am convinced that Laurent Guyano's analysis, while it may be somewhat partial, is far better balanced than the sort of thing that you're going to find at Kabbalah.info, in our Jewish studies departments of our major universities, in our media, in Hollywood, and so on and so forth. So let's take a look at a case study of someone who might be called a Judeophobe. Patrick Little, who just ran for Senate in California, he was the front-running Republican, and then the Zionist-dominated media attacked him quite uh, brutally, and he ended up supposedly polling uh, like 1% something in the election, in the primary, the first round. And uh, he questions those numbers. He thinks that he was victimized by a uh, computer vote fraud. Who knows about that? In any case, his campaign slogans included liberate the U.S. from the Jewish oligarchy, uh, limit representation of Jews in the government, uh, including judgeships to the, the number proportional to their percentage of the U.S. population, which is less than 2%. And finally, he's quoted by Newsweek, I don't know if this is true or not, that he would prefer to see Jewish Americans deported to Israel. Well, I, I would go ahead and say, yeah, I think the word Judeophobe could be applied to this guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, this, this singling out people uh, from a particular ethnicity to limit their representation and then to deport them, uh, just as somebody who said, let's deport all the Muslims, could likely, you could call that person an Islamophobe. Somebody who would like to see Jews deported, you could call a Judeophobe. Um, and of course, there are many types of possible Judeophobia. And of course, Judeophobia implies a, it's a prejudice, and prejudice is often thought to be irrational. But it just prejudice just means prejudging. And sometimes people can prejudge situations uh, for good reasons. So we could argue about how irrational various types of possible Judeophobia might be and whether there might be a, a kind of opposition to Jewish tribal power that might actually be rational and that maybe shouldn't be called Judeophobic because it's, it's not an irrational prejudice. Case study would be uh, Mike E. Michael Jones, who's a Catholic, who's quite anti-Jewish in his language. Uh, so you could make a case for calling him a Judeophobe. Uh, but he's actually not against Jewish individuals or nor is he even prejudiced as far as I can tell against Jewish individuals. I think if our panel today is what about half Jewish or so. Uh, and I think if he met any of these Jewish individuals on our panel, he would be perfectly comfortable with them. Rather he's opposed to Jewish power in America. He doesn't like it because it's disproportionate. Uh, that is at least half the key decision makers in our media, for example, are, uh, are Jewish and most of them are partial to Israel. Uh, that's disproportionate, and there's similar kinds of disproportionality in all sorts of areas of power in the United States, the financial sector, and other areas. But more importantly for, for uh, Mike Jones, he believes that Jewish tribal power is inimical to Christian values. He sees kind of uh, ethnic struggle uh, in the history of the USA involving Catholics versus Jews in Hollywood, for example, where Catholics tried to make sure the films were decent and not uh, disturbing and pornographic, and Jews wanted to make them ever more disturbing and, and shocking and voluptuous and so on. Uh, well, so Mike Jones talks about Jews running Hollywood, and he's called a Judeophobe. But when Joel Stein makes the same point as he did in the Los Angeles Times in his article, Is Hollywood Run by Jews? You bet. I guess that's okay because he's in favor of it. He says, uh, uh, he says, I don't care if Americans think we're running the news media, Hollywood, Wall Street, or the government. I just care that we get to keep running them. And okay, that's, that's, that's a joke, but it's also true. It's not, it's not a joke where he's being ironic saying what he doesn't believe. It's a joke because it's all too true. So it's okay for Joel Stein to say that he's uh, quite happy that Hollywood is totally dominated by Jews to the extent that it's almost impossible to find any important person there who isn't Jewish. 
uh, and he's proud of it. He's happy and he wants Jews to continue to dominate Hollywood and all the other big institutions of power that they currently dominate. Okay, that's fine when he says it, but if Mike Jones doesn't like it, Mike Jones is supposed to be muzzled. Are we supposed to put a gag on him? Maybe Mike Jones would rather have a Catholic America or America that was more in line with Catholic values. He would like to see Hollywood films that were more Christian, that were less uh, less sexual, less violent, uh, more wholesome, etc., etc., etc. So I, I don't think that Mike Jones is necessarily... Uh, a Judeophobe in the sense of someone who is irrationally prejudiced because of his background and his outlook on the world. He's a Catholic, a traditional Catholic. His aversion to Jewish tribal power strikes me as basically rational, although he may go too far in certain areas, but uh, his overall position I don't think is irrational. So there isn't any word right now for people who oppose, critique, or question some or all of the disproportionate tribal power exercised by various Jewish elites. But maybe there should be such a word. Uh, sure, the word anti-Semite is what's being used right now, but as we've seen, that's totally inadequate. So, hey, if somebody can come up with a word, um, I, I'll accept it. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll carry a sign uh, vaunting it. So um, maybe I'll be in the next generation saying, uh, Je suis Jewish power skeptic. I don't know how to make that into one word, but uh, uh, maybe I'll, I'll try. So that's, uh, that's the presentation. So people can be skeptical of Jewish power and not be irrational. I think I've made, at least made a basic case in that direction. You've been listening to author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett on anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, Judeophobia. Let's define our terms from the Deep Truth Visionary Speak Out online video conference produced by No Lies Radio. Next, we hear from journalist, former CIA and military intelligence officer, and executive director of the Council for the National Interest, Philip Giraldi. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. While I was working on my presentation for this conference, I was forced to confront the evolution of my own views on both the corruption of government in the United States and the ability of powerful domestic lobbies to deliberately distort the perception of national interests to benefit foreign countries, even when that activity does terrible damage to the U.S. My personal journey began half a century ago. I became part of the U.S. national security state after being drafted for the Vietnam War when I graduated from college in 1968. I was at the time vaguely pro-war, having bought into the media argument that international communism was mounting a major threat in Southeast Asia. I also found the anti-war student movement distasteful because I was acquainted with many of the spokesmen and knew that they were chiefly motivated by a desire to avoid the draft, not due to any perception that the war itself was wrong or misguided. I personally knew a lot about the Punic Wars, but precious little about former French Indochina. And I suspect that those chanting Ho 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 Chi Minh might have known even less than I did. Because I spoke some Russian, I wound up in an Army Intelligence Collection Unit in West Berlin for three years. I was lucky. Uh, in this unit, I and my 50 or so colleagues did nothing but drink and party. It was my introduction to how government really works when it is not working at all, 
and it did provide me with GI Bill money to go to grad school. After my PhD came a relatively easy transition to the Central Intelligence Agency, given the fact that my degree was so obscure that no one but the government would hire me. The journey from an army unit that was asleep at the wheel to the CIA, which was in full downsizing crisis post-Vietnam, was educational. Whereas the army was too bloated and complacent even to fake it, the agency was fully capable of creating crises and then acting like the defender of American interests as it worked to resolve the various situations that it had invented. The war against Eurocommunism, which I was engaged in, was hyped and billed as the next great threat against the American way of life after the Vietnam blunder, swallowing up resources pointlessly as neither France nor Spain nor Italy ever came close to entering the red orbit. As I climbed up the CIA ladder, I also noticed something else. There was the equivalent of a worldwide conspiracy to promote threats to keep big national security-based government well-funded and in place. When I was in Turkey, I began to know considerable intelligence liaison reporting coming from the Israelis and others promoting their own agendas. The material was frequently fictional in nature, but the danger was that it was being mixed with more credible reporting, which gave attraction. U.S. government consumers of the reporting would inevitably absorb the dubious viewpoint being promoted that Arabs and Iranians were fundamentally untrustworthy and were in bed with the Soviets. There was also considerable negative reporting on Saddam Hussein coming out of Israel and motivated by his support of the Palestinians. Some of this ultimately surfaced in the Pentagon's Paul Wolfowitz dug fight assessments of intelligence that had been missed, which eventually became pretext for the catastrophic Iraq war. I later learned that both Fife and Wolfowitz had virtually revolving doors for Israeli intelligence officials and diplomats running through their Pentagon offices in the lead up to that war. It did not take much to connect the dots and realize that Israel, far from being a friend and ally, was the principal catalyst for the many missteps that the United States has made in the Middle East. U.S. policy in the region was being deliberately shaped around Israeli concerns by American Jews ensconced in the Pentagon and White House, who certainly knew exactly what they were doing. No one should blame the Israelis for acting in their own self-interest. But every loyal American should blame the Libby's, Fights, and Wolfowitzes for their willingness to place Israeli interests ahead of those of their own country. After my departure from government, in part over my disagreement with the Iraq War, this willingness to place the United States in peril to serve the interests of a foreign country bothered me. And there is no country that manipulates the U.S. government better or more persistently than Israel. I gradually became involved with those who were pushing back against the Israel lobby, though it was not generally referred to by that name before Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer produced their seminal work, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, in 2006. It does not take a genius to figure out that the United States is deeply involved in a series of seemingly endless wars pitting it against predominantly Muslim nations even though Washington has no vital interests at stake in places like Syria, Libya, and Iraq. 
who is driving the process and benefiting? Clearly, Israel is the intended beneficiary of a coordinated effort mounted by more than 600 Jewish organizations in the U.S. alone that have at least part of their programs and promotion, the protection of Israel. Ironically, organizations that promote the interests of a foreign government are supposed to be registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938, referred to as FARA. But not a single pro-Israeli organization has ever done so, nor even has it been seriously challenged by the Justice Department on the issue, a tribute to their power in dealing with the federal government. Those who are in the driver's seat of the Israel promotion process are what some would describe as the Israel lobby, but which I would prefer to call a subset of the Jewish lobby, which in itself is supported by something I would designate Jewish power, an aggregate of Jewish money, control over key aspects of the media and entertainment uh, industries, plus easy access to corrupted politicians desirous of positive press and campaign donations. The penetration and control of the public discourse has resulted in the creation of what I would refer to as the official Israel narrative, in which Israel, which claims perpetual victimhood, is reflexively referred to as, quote, the only democracy in the Middle East, and quote, Washington's closest ally and friend. Assertions that are completely false but which have been aggressively and successfully promoted to shape how Americans view the Arab-Israeli conflict. Palestinians resisting the Israeli occupation are invariably described in the U.S. and Israeli media as, quote, terrorists. Jewish power is a funny thing. If you read the Jewish media or the Israeli press, as I do, to include the forward, the Jewish telegraphic agency, Haaretz, or the Jerusalem Post, you will find frequent references to it, nearly always seen as completely laudable. Professor Alan Dershowitz uh, of Harvard University recently boasted that Jews should not apologize for being so rich, controlling the media or influencing public debate. They have earned it. Never apologize for using your strength. For many Jews like Dershowitz, Jewish power is something to be proud of but they also believe that it should never be noticed or examined by non-Jews. Gentile criticism of Jewish collective behavior is something that must continue to be forbidden, just as the expression Israel lobby was largely taboo before Walton Mearsheimer. Israeli partisans regularly engage in the defamation of individuals, including myself, who do not conform to the taboos as anti-Semites, describing us as anti-Semites, or Holocaust deniers, labels deliberately used as weapons to end discussion and silence critics whenever necessary. So why do I think that we have to start talking about Jewish power as opposed to the euphemism Israel lobby? It is because the wars in the Middle East, which have done so much to damage the United States, that were at least in part arranged to benefit Israel, have been largely driven by wealthy and powerful American Jews. If America goes to war with Iran, as is increasingly likely, it will be all about Israel and it will be arranged by the political and financial services, Washington, Wall Street axis. Make no mistake about that. To my mind, Israel is America's number one foreign policy problem in that it is able and willing to start potentially catastrophic wars with countries 
that it has demonized, but which do not threaten the United States. And those doing the manipulating are bipartisan Jewish oligarchs with deep pockets that support the multitude of pro-Israel organizations, think tanks, and media outlets that have done so much to corrupt America's political process. Hollywood producer Haim Saban, the principal Democratic Party financial supporter, has said that he is a one-issue guy, and that issue is Israel. Principal GOP funder, casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, who served in the U.S. Army in World War II, has said that he regrets that service and would have greatly preferred to be in the Israel Defense Forces. They, as well as others, including fund manager Paul Singer and Home Depot's Bernard Marcus, are Jews laboring on behalf of the self-proclaimed Jewish state, while the neoconservatives, fiercely protective of Israel, are also nearly all Jewish. Asserting that the fact that they are Jews acting for a Jewish state should be irrelevant, as they are also doing what is good for America, as is commonly done by they and their apologists, is logically inconsistent and borders on absurdity. As for the frequently cited Bible Belt Christian Zionists who support Israel, they are to be sure numerous, but they do not have the access to the real power in the United States that these Jews have. Jewish power is also what has in part driven the United States into a moral cesspit. Israeli snipers shoot dead scores of unarmed Gazan demonstrators, and hardly anyone in Washington has anything to say about it. America's ambassador to Israel, an Orthodox Jewish lawyer named David Friedman, who has multiple ties to Israel's illegal settlements, used his position to defend Israel, ignoring, uses his uh, position to defend Israel, ignoring U.S. interests. Last week, he held a press conference in which he told reporters to shut their mouths in their criticism of Israel's slaughter of the Gazans. When a young Palestinian nurse is deliberately targeted and killed while treating a wounded man, it hardly appears in the U.S. media. Arab teenagers are shot in the back while running away from Israeli gunmen, while a young woman is sentenced to prison for slapping an Israeli soldier who had just shot her cousin and was invading her home. Heavily armed Israeli settlers run amok on the West Bank, beating and killing Arabs and destroying their livelihoods. That is what Israel and its Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in particular are all about, and that is precisely the kind of a nation that America should not want to become. But unfortunately, the role of Washington as Israel's obedient poodle has made our once great country move in the wrong direction. This has all been brought about by Jewish power in the United States, and it is time to wake up to that fact and address it squarely. Thank you. You've been listening to journalist and former CIA and military intelligence officer Philip Giraldi on How Jewish Power Sustains the Israel Narrative from the Deep Truth Visionary Speakout online video conference produced by No Lies Radio. Next, we hear from jazz musician, philosopher, author, and public speaker Gilad Atzman on Truth, Truthfulness, and Palestine. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
I'm delighted to be on this panel and uh, I learned a lot already, <laughs> though the, the topic um, is very close to my art. I'm very happy to see intellectuals who are brave enough to say the J word and as you just mentioned, Kevin, uh, move beyond the Z, I should say, orientation, like American. Um, my talk is uh, slightly more abstract. I hope that um, you and our, and our audience uh, can cope with it. Truth, truthfulness, and, and Palestine. A healthy society doesn't need a truth movement. But we Americans, Brits, French, and Germans are far from healthy, and our so-called truth movement haven't led us toward any source of light, and the question is why? One possible answer is that truth movements are ideal environments for uh, the operators of control oppositions, of control opposition, I would say, those who insist upon vetting any discussion about the truth by claiming to know what the truth is, what it comprises, and who its enemies are. Karl Popper, uh, quite an important uh, uh, Austrian philosopher who ended up in Britain, posited that uh, since no number of scientific experiments could definitively prove a scientific theory, we should utilize a methodology based on falsifiability. While we possess the means to refute a scientific theory or a scientific truth, we lack the means to factually verify a single scientific truth. For instance, if you state that the sun uh, rises in the east is a valid scientific truth, a single occasion of the sun popping up early in the morning in the West will refute, uh, refute or at least uh, force you to alter your scientific theory. Similarly, building number seven is taught to refute the official 9-11 narrative. Furthermore, history laws such as Holocaust denial laws in Europe or the Nakba law in Israel exist to defy alteration, refutation, or scholarly debate about the past. Instead of helping us to grasp our past, the existence of such laws show us that some parties are desperate to stop anyone from exploring what really happened. We will look into it now and try to understand it. The French philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard observed in his book, Heidegger and the Jews, a very important text that everybody should read, that history may claim to tell us what happened, but most of the time, history is institutionally engaged in concealing our shame. The Americans concealed the brutality of slavery, for instance. The Brits concealed the crimes of the empire. The Jews suppress any inquiry into Jewish accountability for Jewish history's chain of disaster and so on. The message here is that instead of simply learning history from historians, we may well benefit from trying to understand that which historians work hard to conceal. We should ask, why does America build uh, Holocaust museums in, in every city? Why did the Brits make the Imperial War Museum into a Holocaust shrine? And I want to remind you all 
that in all those Holocaust museums, the one thing that you won't find is the embarrassing fact that America didn't let Jewish refugees in. The same applies to Britain. We may even want to understand how is it possible that on the same day Israel is celebrated the, the biggest gay pride party in the Middle East, I'm talking about last Friday, thousands of Israeli snipers were deployed in the Gaza border with an order to shoot every Palestinian who may try to break out of Gaza concentration camp. Israeli liberal uh, LGBT attitude is a pinkwash, obviously. It is an attempt to conceal Israeli abusive racist policies towards the indigenous people of the land. But there is reason to be optimistic. And I'm very optimistic in my talk today, despite the fact that the world is uh, crushing all around us. Against the odds, and despite the open assault on truthfulness, I've come to realize the truth has a unique ability to unveil itself. It always comes out. In this presentation today, we will look at Palestine and Israel in the light of truth and truthfulness, and we will find out that by now, we, I mean all of us, are all Palestinians. Like the Palestinians, we are not allowed to utter the name of our oppressors. Trump and truthfulness. If truth reveals itself, however involuntarily, President Trump is a leading vehicle, or shall I say, an arch facilitator for that to happen. Now, I'm not talking here as a Trump supporter, but I think that Trump is very important. Let us, for instance, examine Trump's decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. This cataclysmic political decision that was criticized by every reasonable figure globally actually provided a unique instance for the truth to unveil itself. Just a few hours after Trump televised announcement, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas informed Vice President Pence, who was at a state visit in the region, that he was a persona non grata in Ramallah. President Abbas' reaction to Trump's Jerusalem move was to declare that America can no longer act as a negotiator. It is a side in the conflict. It was Trump's Jerusalem move that finally allowed the penny to drop. America hasn't just uh, taken a side in the conflict it may as well be an Israeli colony. And I think that this is exactly what uh, Phil Giraldi was, was trying to, to tell us. Truth shines on the Jewish solidarity spin. Over the last two decades, the Palestinian solidarity uh, movement has become a toy for Jewish solidarity. The results of this have been devastating. The core Palestinian plight, namely the right of return, was practically wiped out and replaced by Jew-friendly terminologies, such as end of occupation, a set of peaceful sounding bites that in practice legitimized the existence of pre-1967 Jewish state. New sound bites were attached to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, such as apartheid, colonialism, settler colonialism, and even BDS. These misleading terminologies 
were designed to convey the image that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict wasn't unique, that it had a precedent in history. Of course, this is totally wrong and consciously misleading. Zionism is based upon the ludicrous idea that Jews have the right to return to their homeland after 2,000 years. Who else should enjoy such a universal right? Can my Italian drummer, I, I hope that he's not cross, uh, cross with me that I, I'm starting to um, uh, bring him to, into my discussion. Can my Italian drummer claim my house in London as a Roman offspring? But Trump's Jerusalem move reminded the Palestinians that the denial of the right of return is at the core of their plight. It is the right of return that they should fight for the right of return and nothing but that right. Since March, we have seen huge protests by Palestinians on the Gaza border. These protests have cost a lot of Palestinian lives. Hundreds were murdered by Israeli snipers. Thousands have been injured, but the truth has prevailed. The current resistance by the Palestinians has achieved more of an, a, an impact than 20 years of wasted, diluted, kosher solidarity. Israel is now on the defensive, boycotted culturally and spiritually. For those who don't know in America, Prime Minister Netanyahu visited every significant European capital uh, last week, begging for support on Iran. He found closed doors wherever he went. The Argentinian football team cancelled its visit to Israel. Today I read in the Israeli press that more and more Spanish municipalities ban Israeli cultural events. They just tell them to flag off. These measures are a direct reaction to Israeli barbarism in Gaza and beyond. This is when truth unveils itself. Killing from afar. The Austrian philosopher Otto Weininger dedicated his valuable text, Sex and Character, to her harsh deconstruction of the female character and then concluded his work by suggesting that the Jewish male is a woman. Sorry for those who are offended and I, I'm really sorry for uh, women if they are uh, finding it offensive. I'm talking about Weiniger, you don't have to agree. I myself uh, don't agree entirely with Weiniger, but we're entitled to engage in such an experiment. Weininger killed himself shortly after he published his book. He was very young, 22, I think. He probably couldn't stand the fact that he himself was an effeminate character as well as a Jew. Zionism, however, either consciously or subconsciously, took Weininger very seriously. In its early stages, Zionism saw itself as an alpha male factory. It brought to life the new Israeli male, the Sabra, named for the prickly pear. It's an Arabic, uh, it's the Arabic name for the prickly pear, sorry, prickly pear. The diaspora assimilated Jew was in Zionist eyes indistinguishable from the outside, but calculating and mean in the inside. In contrast, the new Israeli Sabra was uh, to be rough and tough on the outside, yet humane, charming, and sweet on the inside, like the prickly pear. Uh, the Zionist promise was to construct the new Jew, 
to make him uh, into a warrior, combatant that could fight for their uh, for his cause, unlike the diaspora relatives who were taught to have surrendered like lamb to the slaughter. Israeli history suggests that this project seemed successful for a while. In Israel's early days, young Hebrews were willing to fight and died. Indeed, they won a few successive uh, battles, 48, 67, 456 as well. I was brought up within this Spartan environment. My peers and I looked forward to sacrificing ourselves in the Jewish nationalist altar. This has clearly changed. The Israeli army is no longer a winning army. Not only does it lack the divisive victories, more often it finds itself defeated, withdrawn from the battlefield with its tails between its legs. This happened in, in uh, Lebanon in 2006, and it happened in all recent conflict in Gaza when Israeli, um, Israeli ground forces tried to enter Gaza and run away for their lives. What we have seen on the Gaza border in the last two months reveals that Otto Weininger's observation was indeed uh, persistent. Again, the truth has unveiled itself, however involuntarily. The Israeli army is an army that kills from afar. It is basically a barbarian criminal outfit dominated by the cowardly nature of its members. The Israeli military elite has dreaded a march to Jerusalem for decades. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians marching back to their lands, homes, cities, and villages is something that cannot be easily addressed militarily. Generals are naturally fearful of such incidents because they entail unpredictability. It is impossible to predict how a lone rifleman will react when confronted by thousands of angry Palestinians closing in on him. Will he stay to defend his position or will he run for safety? And what about the Air Force? Can we count on an F-16 trained pilot to drop Naplam bomb on an unarmed Palestinians marching towards Tel Aviv? Seemingly, the Israeli generals have found an answer to the above dilemma. They kill from afar. In Gaza, Israel deploys thousands of snipers. They are ordered to kill from afar. Not exactly the heroic image of the early Zionists as face-to-face -face warrior who sees the eyeballs of, of his foes as he fights for his survival. But the snipers are not alone. They are supported by drones who fly above the Palestinians and shoot gas canisters. These drones are controlled by boys and girls who operate in safety and comfort in air-conditioned units. The Israeli pilots also rocket Gaza from distance while cruising over the Negev desert inside Israel or the sea. Otto Weiniger's diagnosis had some merits in it. Apparently, the alpha male transition didn't work as the early Zionists wished. We are all Palestinians. Truth, as we know, is under attack in the West. It doesn't take a genius to identify the elements that see truth as a threat and seek to suppress its seekings and its seekers. The political means that have been designed to suppress truth and truthfulness uh, operate openly. At one stage, 
this online conference was named the Left Out Forum. It is the platform that is designated to those who unveil the shame uh, that whatever left out of the left can't handle. This is easy to explain. The good old left has been hijacked by the so-called new left, a corrosive set of ideologies that are designed to suppress truth and truthfulness. The new left assault on truth is facilitated by two means. The first is identity politics, a divisive, crude attempt to teach us to speak as a, as a woman, as a Jew, as a lesbian, as a black, etc. Identity politics has either consciously or not removed us from authenticity and authentic thinking. Instead of pondering for ourselves, we learn to think as a, in a collective manner, again, as a Jew, as a trans, as a gay, and so on. The second new left tactic is so-called, is the so-called political correctness. PC culture is basically politics that doesn't allow political opposition. Interestingly enough, this is exactly how we define authoritarian and tyrannical discourse. The truth of the matter is that tyrannical conditions are light in comparison with PC culture because PC is driven by self-suppression. It represses our ability to express ourselves authentically and even more dangerously, PC culture stops us from thinking independently. We are basically turned into a bunch of zombies and this may explain why we, uh, we find uh, so many um, zombie films produced in Hollywood that basically train us to our new role in society, being zombies. All of this has led me to the conclusion that in the world in which we live, we are all Palestinians. Palestine is not just some faraway conflict. It is here all around us. Like the Palestinians, we are unable to utter the name of our oppressors, like the Palestinians, our descent has been compromised. In Britain, the police will knock on your door as soon as you tweet your thoughts about Israel and its lobby. Like the Palestinians, our truth is being hijacked, but it has not been murdered, and it will never be murdered. Nobody can murder the truth. But truth, as we have seen, is that which unveils itself against all odds. Truth will shine upon us as it has shined upon Gaza and Palestine in the last two months. Otto Weiniger taught us that in art, self-realization is realization of the world. The artist, according to Weiniger, is the truth by means of self-reflection. Trying to universalize Weiniger's insight may suggest the truth happened to unveil itself to us because truth is in us. Truth is not what you find out while examining the world. It is not in the press or in the media, in CNN, the BBC, or the Guardian of Judea. Truth is not what you find in academia or even uh, in a truth movement pamphlet. Truth always unveils itself because truth is that which we find in ourselves.
Truth is found when we close our eyes in disbelief. It reveals itself when we learn to attend to our inner voice of reason and ethics. Truth, therefore, is from, far from being a subjective, remote, theoretical entity. It is that seed of humanity we all share. It is that which makes us into one, a one that transcends beyond political affiliation, gender, race, or biology. Like in Palestine, soon, inshallah, we will realize the truth, I mean our truth, that which we share is the only thing worth fighting for. Thank you so much. been listening to jazz musician, philosopher, and author Gilad Otzman on Truth, Truthfulness, and Palestine. Today's show has been Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 1. Visit Gilad Otzman's website at gilad.co.uk. That's G-I-L-A-D dot C-O dot U-K. Visit Philip Giraldi's website at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.com. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.com. Visit Kevin Barrett's website at TruthJihad.com. That's TruthJihad.com. To view the archived live stream of the Deep Truth Visionary Speakout online video conference, visit NoLiesRadio.org. That's NoLiesRadio.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?